0: If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. As Katie said, we're going to be in Mark ten thirty-two through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Amen.
1: Thanks, Jesse. Um, hey, guys, welcome to church. So glad you're here with us this morning. And I'm really glad the, the screen stopped shaking, too. I, I realized that it was either going to be you guys are going to be cooled off with air conditioning or the screen is going to give you a seizure. So um, hopefully it's OK. The temperature in here is fine with you guys. Um, hey, my name is Stephen Copperman. I haven't met you yet. i uh, love to meet you after service. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're just walking through Mark um, in this first year of King's Church. And so i uh, so glad you could be with us this morning as we do that. Um, as we look at Mark 10, 32 through 45, what we're going to see here is that Jesus is going to define the word greatness. He's going to define the word greatness in a way. And actually, in, in some ways, he's going to kind of redefine greatness and kind of only the way that Jesus does. And also, I feel like like rappers do. like They de- redefine words, right? It's like this word used to mean one thing, and now it means another thing. And so that's what Jesus does here. Um, and, and so where does this definition come from? I, I wanted to actually throw your way a couple of quotes that uh, we could kind of compare and contrast. The idea is the world's uh, kind of uh, perspective on greatness versus scripture, okay? So the first uh, quote is is up here on screen. Uh, the greatest happiness is to vanquish your enemies, to chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see those dear to them, bathed in tears, to clasp your bosom, their wives and daughters. Genghis Khan, all right? Pretty hardcore, Um and uh, if you know anything about Genghis Khan, kind of no surprise that he has this idea of what it means to be uh, successful, happy, great in, in, that, in that way. Uh, if you're familiar with that kind of 80s uh, movie arc of Conan the Barbarian, uh, he kind of has a similar thing that he pulls from uh, Genghis Khan as well. Let's look at what Paul says in Philippians 2 about Christ. Philippians 2, 5-8, have this mind among yourselves... Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There, There is a, a sense that uh, as we think about greatness and success and making it, um, and I think it's a little bit more nuanced nowadays in the secular world as opposed to Genghis Khan days. But there's still this sense of like our human nature, our base desire for greatness means that we succeed when others don't, oftentimes, when it comes down to it. And there's this sense that I'm going to get mine, I'm going to climb the ladder, and I might hurt others in the wake of that as long as I'm king of the hill when it's all said and done. Now, we may not say that out loud we may not actually like, tell people that's how to become great, but for so many people, especially living kind of their lives in the secular world, that's, that's the path of greatness. That's how one becomes successful. And on the other hand, we see the stark contrast of how God is calling us to understand greatness in light of scripture, in light of Christ's example for us, and it's, it's, it's stark differences, Right? to be made low, to serve others, to walk in humility. And I want you to see, church, this morning that, that following Jesus is not about us getting more, but following Jesus is about him being enough. That's something that is so important for us as believers to understand, that he is uh, he's the one who our hearts should be uh, looking towards. He's the object he's the, uh, of our affection, that Christ would be all. And through the story today, we see uh, James and John. And uh, we see ourselves in this narrative as well. And if you've read this story before, if you've heard these, um, these, these questions before, you'll know that there's this folly of chasing the world's kind of greatness versus Jesus offering a different type of greatness. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to answer this question very simply, how to become great in the kingdom of God. How do you become great in God's kingdom? First of all, I want to point out that Jesus starts um, in this laser kind of focus on the mission. So that's the first point, focus on the mission, verses 32 through 34. Uh, it says this, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Um, and, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, say, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is actually the third time that Jesus predicts his death in the Gospel of Mark. But this is the first time that he explicitly uses the word, the place, Jerusalem. And he starts to talk uh, in, in specifics about not only Uh, that he will die that he will be given up to the chief priests and the scribes but that there will be this torture involved there will be uh this kind of this uh, all these events leading up to his death including jerusalem and and so these details you see that they do different things to different groups of people the disciples are amazed they're amazed by the details they're amazed by jesus calling his shot in a way and other people are frightened. They're afraid by what he's talking about. And we have to remember that there's this still this dynamic of people believe Jesus is God, but they don't necessarily understand what being the Son of God, being God, means if, for them and how he's going to go to the cross and die. And that's not expected for any of these folks. But now he's starting to become more explicit about the direction he's taking. And he's, he's doing so in a way where he's kind of marching forward with like this, renewed focus and, and vision and zeal. Like he's on a mission, and people are starting to take notice. And he, he describes this in two parts. He's going to be given over to the chief priests and scribes, and then also he'll be given over to the Romans and the Gentiles and all the political leaders of the day. So basically, everyone will betray Jesus at some point, point. and he's, he's clear. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit on, I'm going to be beaten, killed, Three days in the grave and then the resurrection. I want you to think about for a second. Um, would you, if you could be given this opportunity, would you take it? Would you take the opportunity to know how and when you would die? Think about that for a second. Would you Would you say yes to that? Actually, by show of hands. How many would say yes? I would want to know how and when I would die. Go ahead, raise your hands. I see about a third of the room. So, The other two-thirds of you are like, no, let's just keep that mysterious. I'm probably in the other two-thirds. I I think there's this sense that Jesus is starting to be very aware that the time is coming to the end. He's starting to realize that, hey, I still have these things I want to get done. Uh, This has been accomplished already. And he starts to get more and more focused. Now, whether or not you said, yes, I'd want to know, or no, I'd rather not, let's just say you did know when and how you're going to die, imagine for a second how focused you would be on the time you have left. You'd be laser focused on it. It would be like, man, I want to make all these days count after probably freaking out for a while, right? You probably unravel a little bit. And then maybe in a positive spin, you're like, I want to make all these days count. I want to figure out how to spend the most amount of time with my family and friends. I want to make sure that I do all these things on my bucket list. I want to make sure that there's a sense of purpose to my life. And Jesus, uh, above anyone else, there would be this laser focus of like, man, I, I have to do these things leading up to the cross, thinking about how much that day would mean to, to him. And I just want to remind you, church, that, that Jesus' death didn't just kind of happen to him. It wasn't something that, that was um, you know, kind of random or, or could have happened to anybody at all. Jesus' death on the cross was the sole reason for him coming to earth to start with. And in these first uh, few verses, we see that Jesus is coming online with this timeline that God has given him. He has renewed focus. He has renewed energy and clarity. And before we skip on, I, I do want to apply this a little bit to us because I think there's this sense of if, if we had that date in mind, um, imagine the type of clarity we would have spiritually. Uh, imagine the type of clarity and how that would impact where you worked or how you spent money or, or how evangelistic you were with your neighbors and the people who are lost in your lives. And in just a small way, I want to challenge you that even though we don't know the date and when that will happen, we do know that our days are numbered. Our, our, our life isn't going to get much longer than 70, 80, 90 years. Some of you might live to 100. And, and regardless, there should be this sense of, man, my days are, are short. And, and maybe I don't know the exact date, but like Jesus, we can have a focus on what is most important in this life as we walk towards the end. Now, coming off of this great focus, we also see some great foolishness. Uh, James and John have their most embarrassing moment kind of locked up here. Sometimes we're in conversations with people, and they're like, what's your most embarrassing moment? This is James and John's most embarrassing moment. Now, to be fair, we probably wouldn't be far off in thinking the same way or, or the same thing. Um, but number two, as we think about greatness in God's kingdom, number two is this, beware of our selfish heart. Beware of our selfish heart. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, let's pause here. What? Like, has that ever worked before, by the way? Try, I dare you to try that tomorrow with your boss, right? Uh, like, uh, students or, or kids, try that tomorrow with your, your parents, right? Like, that would never work. In fact, actually, if my kids came up and said that, that preloads in me a no. Like, I'm, I'm immediately going to say no, probably. Probably not. Whatever you're about to say, it's going to be no. Um, and, and just think about the context. Like, Jesus has just shared his most dark and terrible days are ahead. These, all these awful things are going to happen. And think about the tone of this moment, and the quiet that follows, uh, hey, Jesus, by the way, we want you to do whatever we want you to do. How do you feel about that? And, and Jesus doesn't bite. It's not his first rodeo. Look at verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I'm not going to sign a blank check. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Basically, James and John hear Jesus say he's going to die. This is for the third time. He's predicting his death. And then in one idiotic moment, they shoot their shot and say, what about us in that situation? How does this apply to us? Teacher, uh, you're clearly the best, but we would like to propose to be second and third best. How would you feel about that, Lord? Uh, Teacher, we talked about it together, and we thought the three of us, could become quite a powerful group together. We, we have a lot going for us in this kind of trifecta. Now, James and John have a bit of a history. Um, and actually, uh, you, you see throughout the Gospels that they have this nickname, and Jesus calls them the Sons of Thunder. The Sons of Thunder. Um, there's, there's lots of thoughts about why that nickname might be, but it seems like it's a good fit here, that it's a bold request. That James and John kind of roll out this bold, strong request and I, I do want to talk about the merits of their thinking for a second. Uh, in a positive way, on one hand, it is commendable. Because to not dismiss this too quickly, it is commendable because James and John, they actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That's actually, that's great news for James and John. They, they're in, they're full on, they're like, you know what? Yeah, we believe this. We believe that you're coming uh, to to save us, to die for us on the cross, and all these things that you said are to come to pass, we believe it. We're in. In fact, we're so in that we're going to take it a step further and say, let's talk about what happens afterwards. So they have belief, they have faith that Jesus is going to be victorious, that they are on the winning team. That being said, as we know, this is completely tone deaf, right? Like it kind of be like saying like one of your parents is terminally ill. And on their deathbed, just a couple of weeks left, you start talking about things like, you know, money, or what can I have in the house? Or, and, and at some level, that's appropriate, but there's a time and place for those conversations. There's a time and place to have those discussions, and it can be insensitive. And I think, though, that we can do the same thing at times, that we can kind of be the same type of tone deaf, where we actually believe the right things. We have faith about the right things. Our theology is, is locked in. We have kind of the right buckets for who God is and what he does. We have the view that's correct, yet we miss the point of what it means to be in relationship with him. And I want to challenge you all this morning. This, this might be you in terms of posture approaching God's throne. Are you so caught up in getting the words right or praying the right prayers or making sure that you have the right theology, and yet you have no relationship with God himself? That's very possible for a lot of us. It's possible if you've been in church a long time, you know a lot about God. You would pass those tests that maybe uh, Daniel and the the volunteers are working through as far as just trivia stuff or just those fun games you play in Sunday school, you would pass those with flying colors. But when it comes to actually, hey, do you know Jesus yourself? Do you actually know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Maybe it's a little different. And Jesus reminds these guys, and we are to be reminded this morning that the kingdom of God is not about self-promotion. The kingdom of God is not about posturing for first place. The kingdom of God is not about personal glory and how good we can have it. The kingdom of God is is something different. It's something that's almost upside down when it comes to how we see the world. And knowing the gospel, knowing the The heart of the gospel will will change you. And so this bold question, it reveals this disconnect in James and John. And so Jesus responds in verse 38, and he says this, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, there's actually kind of two bits of Old Testament imagery here that um, if you even want to highlight or underline drink the cup and be baptized, these things are, are used very specifically by Jesus to these guys, and they would have known exactly what they were talking about. So first of all, the cup has always been this idea of suffering, and for, for you to be poured out of that cup, it was like God's wrath being poured out over humanity or a person specifically, and so that, that would have been an idea, like are you ready to drink the cup, to suffer the way that I'm going to suffer. That's what he's saying there. And the second thing we see is this baptism uh, notion. Now, for a second, take aside uh, our understanding of of baptism, all right, as far as one of the ways we as Christians, the first step of obedience, we get baptized, we declare to the world, to our friends, that we are with Jesus, that he has saved us. It's an awesome thing in the church. In fact, we're having a baptism in June. Uh, Love to have you be a part of that. But that's not what we're talking about right now. Jesus is talking about something different it's 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 not how we view it it's more about being overwhelmed by something that's the idea that jesus is saying you are you've been overcome by it it's if any of you've been surfing before or even just kind of swam in the ocean you've ever tried to catch a catch a wave before and sometimes it doesn't work out and you you do what's called you wipe out right so you, you don't catch the wave quite right you start tumbling through the waves Sometimes you hit the sand. There's pain. There's you're like you're. I'm not sure what side is up and down, and there's a sense of being wiped out. That's the baptism that Jesus is talking about. Another example is actually if you're a basketball fan. I remember years ago. This is probably like 15 years ago when Kobe Bryant was still around. There was this, this moment when Kobe, when he was playing for the Lakers, he dunked on Dwight Howard, like so hard it was awesome. It was amazing. If you guys want to look it up some, at some point, look it up. He dunks on Dwight Howard, who's like seven feet tall. And actually, the, the newspapers literally called it that he baptized Dwight. Uh, that's, that's kind of like the shade they threw at Dwight. Like they, he got baptized by Kobe. Coming in the, a new end of the league, he was baptized. And so that's a little bit of what Jesus is talking about here, that there's this being overwhelmed, being overcome by this great power when you are baptized, uh, being, being subject to suffering through the cup, the wrath of God being poured out upon you. And so Jesus says, guys, you're talking about glory. You're talking about what happens at the end. You're actually talking about heaven. And this is something that I think as Christians, again, we can learn from this discourse because oftentimes we lean in so far into the good news of Jesus, which is good news for us. Praise God for the finished work of Jesus on the cross and then we skip ahead and say man heaven's going to be awesome isn't it i can't wait till heaven happens and there's this whole section in between where not only like could it happen maybe it happens the bible says it's very clear that the life for a christian will be hard that there'll be suffering involved that there'll be difficulty involved and james and john are talking about glory and Jesus says, I'm talking about the suffering that precedes the glory. And, and don't be so quick to, to skip over that. You want to suffer in the same way? James and John doubled down. And they said to him, verse 39, we are able. We're able to do that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be Baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. These guys double down on their arrogance or ignorance or something. I don't, I don't know. Like, like, they say, sure, we can do that. And again, at, at best, it's ignorance. At worst, it's arrogance. But they say, bring it on, Jesus. Torture, death, the whole thing. We got this. And we're not sure why they respond this way, but I I think that for whatever reason, whether they just have this bravado, the sense of like spiritual high, I'm not sure why they respond that way. Scripture isn't clear. But what I do seem to think is that Jesus has an opportunity here to really put them in their place, and he doesn't. And I I love that about Jesus, is that uh, he can be really harsh And hard on those who are uh, taking advantage of people, uh, those who are out of line when it comes to putting religion and legality in front of uh, spiritual health. But when it comes to people who are well-meaning, and and people who maybe even have it wrong, have kind of the the things out of order a little bit, like James and John, um, he sees them with with love in their eyes. And I don't know, I could have gone either way on this, but... He doesn't humiliate them. He realizes that these are dear friends, and and he sees their future clearly. He sees what's going to happen to James and John clearly, that in fact, they will suffer and be baptized by the same hardship that Jesus will experience himself. And we know this from the tradition of church, uh, just kind of, of, of history, that James will be the first apostle who is martyred. He's killed for his faith. That John will... Will live out his whole life, but he'll live his life uh, lonely. And he dies on Patmos, the island of Patmos, by himself. In other words, though, in verse thirty-nine and forty, Jesus, Jesus tells them the truth in love. He says, "This is what's going to happen," and because I love you, I want you to know that this is going to be hard. In Matthew seven fourteen. Uh, Jesus says it this way, that the, the way is, is narrow, and, and in no uncertain terms, he tells James and John that you guys are on this path towards living a life of a Christian, but it's going to end with you being tortured and killed, and then u- ultimately, he gets back to their question about sitting at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in heaven, and he says in verse 40 that, you know what, that's actually not my place to answer that question. It's up to the Father. And I love this because Jesus was God in the flesh. We, we know this hopefully through our time in Mark that he was actually God. He was man, but he was also God at the same time. And he says, though, ultimately, I can't, I can't answer that question because I'm living in submission to the Father. And There's some things that are hidden from me. There's some things that I don't know. And, and so Jesus embodies humility, and he responds to James and John in this way. Now, I don't want to pick on these guys too much, but it is important that we realize that we are just like James and John so often in our lives. We can uh, have our whole world, our whole lives, be embodied by selfishness and narrow-mindedness and entitlements. And at times, it can blind us to what is most important. What is the mission? Ultimately, it can blind us to the gospel. And so is there any chance that your pride Or your entitlement has blinded you this morning as well. Think about that for a minute. Is there an area in your life perhaps where you feel like you got this? Or maybe you deserve this? And because of that, it's kind of muddled you spiritually in that area. A quick test for this. uh, And maybe you've heard this before, but if God were to answer all of your prayers... Who benefits the most? Is it you? Is it people in your life? Is it those who are lost in your neighborhood? Like, there, There's kind of some ways for us to understand our entitlement in, in hard ways. And so we'd encourage you to, to understand your, uh, your selfish heart. Number three in this story is this. Acknowledge culture's grip on us. Again, we're trying to discover and understand how do we Uh, understand jesus's definition for greatness acknowledge culture's grip on us verse 41 and when the ten heard it they began to be indignant at james and john all right let's just stop there so at this point guess what Uh, a private and a kind of an embarrassing conversation has become public this conversation has grown in maybe volume or maybe jesus has kind of been more demonstrative and said hey guys let's, let's let's bring it in let's talk about this as a group The disciples are upset. Uh, James and John asked what? Excuse me? They said that to you, Jesus? Seriously? Maybe there's hope because these guys are are mature Christians. The disciples have been following Jesus for so long. They realize that that's the wrong question to ask at this time. And so they're going to, uh, hopefully there's some logic in that crowd. But it turns out this group of disciples has this inbred streak of entitlement in them. Because they're upset, it says they're indignant at James and John, and they're upset because James and John got the jump. They got there first. They asked the question first, like, shoot, I was just about to say that. You guys ever had that happen before? Maybe you're at a a meeting at work, and someone raises their hand and asks for uh, extra PTO. It's like, hey, I have a, a family reunion coming up. Is it okay if we take some extra time off? Like, yeah, that's fine. Family's in town. Family's important. Go ahead and do that. And you're like, uh, me too, I have something going on this next month as well. Is it okay if I take some extra time? No, sorry, we, we have kind of everybody who's gone is going to be gone, and, and that, that's, that's all we have here. Uh, man, I was so close. Beat me to it. I was just about to ask that question. And this is the 10 looking at <laughs> James and John. And they're upset not because of what they said, they're upset because they thought to say it first. And Jesus steps back and realizes, man, there's still work to do with you guys. And I I just want to, I don't know, there's there's a sense that we can kind of bash the disciples. As we walk through Mark, there's this kind of easy, low-hanging fruit of being able to bash the disciples a little bit. I mean, they're with Jesus all the time. They're hearing him speak firsthand. They have a relationship with him. Like, why are they so slow to understand these things? And I know from my own heart, I can be so judgmental about, about why don't, they don't get it. And then I remember that because when Jesus died and he ascended into heaven, he promised us a helper. And as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit with us at all times. And so we're, we're no better off when we sin. I mean, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God with us all the time as well. And yet we still forget things all the time. We still miss it on a daily basis. And so what I want to point out here, not so much of how how silly or how dumb the disciples are, but just how the value of God's kingdom, again, are just completely countercultural to what is the norm. And these disciples, um, they represent a perspective kind of akin to Genghis Khan. It's like, hey, whoever gets here first wins, Whoever dies at the end with the most toys wins, right? And, and Jesus just said this in verse 31, but it doesn't stick. And so he dives in again. This is what citizens of God's kingdom are like, and he reminds them in verse 41. <coughs> verse 42. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is speaking about their experience. And remember contextually, these disciples, these Jewish disciples, they all had had landlords. They all had bosses. They all had, there was a structure, hierarchy in place in society. And so the Romans were the guys who who were in charge, and the Romans lorded over even the disciples. On every farm, on every city, every coin had a picture of the guy in charge. And so self-promotion had made the Romans powerful, and the Jews hated them for it. They were so bitter against the Romans. And yet this was the norm. Their culture encouraged it. And it's the same today as well. This is how uh, the world works. Our surrounding culture, our friends, our, this is our standard operating procedure. And Jesus has to remind the disciples and us again that, that the culture of the kingdom is different. It has to be different. The kingdom culture is all about greatness being defined Is is all about service. It's about serving each other. It's about loving each other in that way. First place means you put yourself last. And so in, in, in your life and mine, I, I love this, this quote I was reminded of this week. Even as a, as a pastor, thinking about uh, preaching a, a passage like this, like I want to preach this as well as I can. But at the end of the day, my, my life should really be about preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That there'd be the sense that I'm so just laser focused on the mission of proclaiming God's word and getting the gospel out there. It's not, the, it's not about me it's not about my own life that I would be forgotten in the process of even fulfilling my own calling in, in life. And Jesus says to be first, it means you have to be a slave to all. You have to be a servant to all. Think about these words for a second. What is the life of a servant like? Uh, you guys probably don't have servants. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have someone who cleans your house. Maybe. Maybe you've experienced, maybe you've experienced the service before, like a car wash, or someone coming and cleaning your clothes, or things like that. Uh, There used to be, obviously, servants throughout history, slaves who would do all that work for people in houses. What was the life of that person like? Not good, right? Um, No one is waiting on the servant. Servants are our last to eat. They're the last to get the good things, the last to rest. Sometimes you're even forgotten. And our entire culture is rigged towards us feeling like we're supposed to be more important than we actually are. And I just want to remind you of that this morning. We're not that important. And it doesn't mean that you're not valued. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see you and that he doesn't love you. But it means that when it comes to our place in God's kingdom, we are to actively look for ways for us to be last, not first. Would you consider that, what it would look like for every person at the King's Church to be treated, if we treated every person we came in contact with as someone who was better than us? Let me say that again. Consider what it would look like if every person at the King's Church uh, treated every person we came in contact with as someone who was better than, than we were. What would that look like in your life and mine? I think it would be transformative. What would it look like if we took seriously our identity to be a servant, a slave to all? Man, we would have no trouble doing church together. We'd have no trouble making an impact in our community for the gospel. Just think about even practically the rest of the day and the week, the, the waiter who is on their phone instead of hustling to bring us back our food right, like those folks who just frustrate us, the the neighbor who allows their dog to do their duty on your yard, right, never picks up after themselves, the sibling who pushes your buttons, your snoring spouse, right, like, there's, there's all kinds of categories for those who are like, man, I just, I'm so much better than that person when it comes to these areas, and Jesus pushes back, and he says, actually, if you really want to be considered great, be a servant to all. I don't know about you, but if we were a church who made made that reality, took that reality seriously, I think people would notice. I think communities would be transformed. I think families would be healed. Marriages would be healed if we were to take that reality seriously. That if we were to be a servant to all, and and then when people notice, we can tell them about our example. It's the way of Jesus. He is the one that we follow, and that's point number four, the last point, that when it comes to understanding greatness in God's kingdom, that we would follow Jesus. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give us life as a ransom for many. This church is the centerpiece in many ways of scripture. This is the good news. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give up His life as a ransom for many. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I love that how the first 45 starts. For even, for even, that's powerful words in Scripture because it, 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 sets aside, it, it It's like it's saying uh, this shouldn't apply to God. This shouldn't have applied to Jesus, but even Jesus took it upon Himself to have this posture. In himself to, to serve and not to be served. In other words, if, if Jesus, God's own Son, didn't expect to be served, in what backwards alternate reality do, do, we, do you and I deserve to be served? Jesus decided this for himself, for even the Son of Man gave his life up. Jesus' entire earthly existence was, was unfair, was harsh was suffering and pain, and it ended with death. And Marcus told us multiple times about this. But finally here, in chapter 10, verse 45, we get the reason for his death. This is huge. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died so he could give his life up as a ransom for us. So that he would die instead of us. I love that even... Our New City Catechism this morning points to this. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus, his death paid the price for us so we didn't have to die. That's what Mark 10, 45 is telling us. And if you are Christians this morning, Jesus died. He paid that ransom for you. That is good news for us. And he didn't pay that ransom in gold coins or stacks of $100 bills in a duffel bag, right? Like that's how we think about ransom and maybe kidnapping kind of scenarios. But Jesus paid this ransom with his blood, with his own life shed on, on the cross. And, and so we were dead without hope. And Jesus steps in and says, I'll pay that ransom. I'll pay that sin with my own life. Life for life. This is how Jesus saves us. And he points to it explicitly here in Mark 10, 45. This is the heart of the gospel. And I hope you understand it this morning. And I'm speaking to you this morning if you are new to faith, if you have been maybe walking with Jesus for the last couple of weeks or a year or so, if you uh, have grown up in church and you've heard all of this before, or perhaps you walked in here this morning and, and you don't have a relationship with God at all. How does this all work? It's very simple. Know that you are a sinner. You are a sinner, and because of that sin, we have a separation from a holy God. And so what is left, what hope is there for us? Well, there's good news that Jesus, uh, God's own son, came to live on this earth and to die for those sins, and so we can repent and believe in him. And when you finally do this, you are forgiven, not just one time like the Catholic Church thinks. Not just one time for a little while until we mess up again, but forever, perpetually, you are clean in the eyes of God. That is the good news of that ransom being paid. That's how powerful that payment of ransom was. And all he asks us to do in return is to follow him. Follow Jesus. As we close this morning, I, I think that we're all following someone right? Like, we all follow people. Um, authors, um, dead people, right? Like, books. I heard someone talking about, like, Jordan Peterson this morning. Uh, there, there's, there's names even nowadays that people will throw out. as like, hey, I, I, I listen to them. I, I allow them to speak into my mind into my heart. All those podcasts and thought leaders who say things the, the way that we wish we could, right? And We all have these important people in our lives. Maybe it's coaches or mentors. But one of the reasons we must follow Jesus above anyone else is because the life that he's calling us to is more radical than any other life that we've seen. It's a life that's marked by service. It's a life that's marked by humility and love for people. Not just people who look like you and think like you and vote like you, but people who are radically different than you. And that gap in lifestyle is massive. In fact, it's, it's eternal. And so James and John, again, they knew Jesus. They loved him. They even followed him. But they serve this morning as an example of what it looks like to listen to culture, to listen to the wisdom of the world, to allow um, the sense of what, is, what does greatness mean to leak into their heads and to treasure those things more than the way of Jesus. And so this morning as we close, let's just be a church that serves, that considers ourselves as lesser than the person to the right and the left, that defers and treats others better than ourselves, because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's certainly good enough for us too. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, we thank you for this time to be reminded to, in some ways, be be shaken out of our our kind of normal posture, the way that we're just walking through this life of trying to pay bills and succeed at things and, and grow and, and all the things that maybe those who are not in you would say, yeah, that's just the way we live. But God, I, I pray that we would be a, a church, we would be a people that would be uh, pointed towards better things, that we would see that what it, what it means to be greater in God's kingdom, in your kingdom, Lord, means that we are a servant, that we consider ourselves low. And God, I, I, I pray for those in this room who are, 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 are dealing with pride and feeling entitled in very specific areas. I don't know what those areas are, but, but they do. Maybe it's in their parenting. Maybe it's in the way that they raise their kids. Maybe it's in their finances, the way that they handle money and the the fact that they have this 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 huge portfolio, and they feel safe and secure in that. God, maybe there's this pride and arrogance in the way that they, uh, their interpersonal skills, how they're great listeners or uh, great uh, employees at their their work, whatever it is. God, you know, you know how our hearts tend to be selfish, and we think about posturing, we think about how we are great in these ways. Lord, would you remind us, God, that while you have gifted us while you have uh, given us unique experiences, ultimately, Lord, the posture of a Christian is to, to lay ourselves low. To say we want to serve, we want to serve those to our right and left. We want to serve our community. We want to always be reminded that we follow Jesus in the way of service. That help us to radically change our hearts in that way this morning. Praise your name. Amen.